Okay, hello everybody. Today is Friday, another Anything Goes Friday. Welcome to the show. First, I would like to give a big thank you to everybody who listened to the recent episode on Donna Lass, which came out yesterday. On Thursdays this year, I've been doing a regular segment about the disappearance of Donna Lass from 1970, and I would like to ask you guys a question. Is there another particular true crime case that you would like to hear about in a multi-part series. I might even do another poll in the near future. Last time I did one, you guys voted to hear about the disappearance of Donna Lass, and I've been doing that one for several months now. And of course, on Mondays, I do Zodiac Mondays, talking about all aspects of the Zodiac killer mystery. But you can go ahead and put any suggestion, idea, comment down below about what do you think would be a good true crime case or just any subject, really, any subject is fair game, right, for a multi-part series, please put your ideas down in the comments section. And today I'm going to be covering some new territory for Black Box Online Radio. This is going to be the first time where I'm going to devote an entire episode to D.B. Cooper on my own. Um, I've interviewed Drew Beeson in the past for about his book, Paratrooper of Fortune, but of course he was providing most of the substance material. And I have to give a shout out to the Creepy Pasta, who recommended D.B. Cooper as something for the Anything Goes segments on Fridays. The Creepy Pasta, you make awesome suggestions and recommendations. And because this is an episode that was recommended by one of the listeners, even if it's not a multi part series, and there's just something that you want to hear about for the Anything Goes segment on Friday, you can always drop your suggestions in the comment section down below if I can talk correctly, and I will have a look at them. But yes, D.B. Cooper is a good subject to be talking about right now because not only are we approaching the anniversary, it is now November at the time of this recording, but it is also approaching the 50th anniversary of the D.B. Cooper hijacking. And this is a very big story. This is a very big case to talk about because there's so many different angles, there's so many different suspects, there's so many different possibilities in the D.B. Cooper mystery. So firstly, I want to give the disclaimer that I am an outsider to this, and as the Japanese film Sanjuro famously laid out, sometimes outside eyes can have the best view. No, I don't really mean that I'm going to have the best view on D.B. Cooper, but Maybe someone sharing a fresh take on the subject, or a genuine outsider to the mystery, can offer something. So I'm going to approach it that way. I am not a diehard D.B. Cooper expert. In fact, I am mostly a newcomer to this. So here's a newcomer's take on the D.B. Cooper suspect list. And to help us out, we're going to go over to citizensleuths.com for a very well-worded D.B. Cooper intro. One afternoon, a day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a guy calling himself Dan Cooper, the media mistakenly called him D.B. Cooper, boarded Northwest Airlines flight number 305 in Portland, bound for Seattle. He was wearing a dark suit and a black tie and was described as a business executive type. While in the air, he opened a briefcase and showed a bomb to the flight attendant and hijacked the plane. The plane landed in Seattle where he demanded $200,000 in cash, four parachutes, and food for the crew before releasing all the passengers. With only three pilots and one flight attendant left on board, they took off from Seattle with the marked bills 
and headed south while it was dark and lightly raining. In the 45 minutes after takeoff, Cooper sent the flight attendant to the cockpit while donning the parachute, tied himself with the bank bag full of $20 bills and lowered the rear stairs and somewhere north of Portland jumped into the night. When the plane landed with the stairs down, they found the two remaining parachutes on the seat Cooper was sitting in and a black tie. Okay, so that is the basic introduction. A skyjacking, a hostage case that where someone may have actually obtained the money. When I was growing up, and I would watch true crime programs on the television, people would often point out that it is very difficult to commit a hostage situation or to go into a hostage situation and actually obtain the ransom money because some way, somehow, people are either going to intercept the criminal when they're going after the money or they're going to catch the criminal because of information that they're sharing during the communications. And I always noticed that about D.B. Cooper, that it's a hostage situation where someone may have actually found a way to get the money and to get out of the situation completely undetected. There are a few, um, a few very, very negative possibilities about D.B. Cooper's escape. And, okay, I might as well just get to it. Back in 2012, I became a fan of those countdown websites like All Time Tens, Dark Five, List 25, and very frequently D.B. Cooper would come up as a subject on those. And many of those very nutshell version YouTube videos would say that they didn't believe that D.B. Cooper survived the parachute jump. And I'll talk about that in, um, in this uh, episode, more or less, throughout the duration. But to get to the suspect list without further ado, the first suspect that I would like to talk about is Robert Rackstraw. And I have heard at least one person online pronounce his name Robert Rakestraw, but everyone else has been going with Rackstraw, so I'm going to go with that one as well. I found the YouTube channel Let Me Know. It was one that I had never listened to before, but their D.B. Cooper video had 11 million views, so I'm going to give them some credit for citing the source, so to speak. But their um, case for Robert Rackstraw being D.B. Cooper is he had a military background, he knew how to make a bomb, he had a criminal record, had a skydiving uncle named John Cooper, and was discharged from the Army five months before the hijacking, and did not deny being D.B. Cooper. As far as um, being discharged from the Army five months before the hijacking, in their video, they claimed that D.B. Cooper made the statement that he had a grudge against someone or something, and could this possibly be what he was referring to? My immediate response to this, again, as an outsider, he did not deny being D.B. Cooper. Well, I view that almost as a type of egocentric behavior that we encounter in the true crime world all the time. People are going to be pushing suspects, and they are going to talk about how, hey, he never said he didn't do it. Yeah, because he's getting off on the attention, and I don't think that that is significant of guilt in any single way. But one person who did believe that 
Rackstraw was D.B. Cooper is someone named Tom Colbert. In a previous episode, I referred to him as Tom Colbert, but I heard on Drew Beeson's channel that it's pronounced Colbert, and you know, I guess uh, more people are going to be doing that in this century now. Yeah, pronounce your names any way you want. But let's just read some of the things that this guy shared. And I, oh, I also I forgot the biggest point. Colbert is one of the guys who is associated with the case breakers, the people who brought Gary Francis Post forward as a Zodiac killer suspect. And I'm going to go to a San Diego Union Tribune article by Jeff McDonald that says, he was a high school dropout and U.S. Army paratrooper, trained in explosives and psychological operations. He also worked as a pilot for hire in pre-revolution Iran and served more than a year in prison for stealing a plane and, and passing bad checks. And, um, yes, they were talking about the passing of Robert Rackstraw at the end of this um, article here. But let's hear a little bit more about Colbert's theory. Colbert believes two other men helped pull off the heist after they were allegedly seen on a small plane in another airfield around the time of the hijacking. There, there then said, they are then said to have picked up Cooper after he landed and flew under the radar to drop him off safely so that he could make his getaway. Colbert is an is adamant the FBI was too hasty to wrap up the investigation and now says the revelation of the hidden messages, especially links to the CIA, proves why the agency has been stonewalling. I mean, I, I meant to read the whole text before I threw in an interjection, but that's almost just making excuses about why someone's theory doesn't work. But um, to continue, he said his team found what they believed to be a parachute strap and foam padding from the skydiver's backpack in the forest near Cooper's alleged jump location in 2017. They turned over the two items, along with the dig site itself, to the FBI. And they did a segment about this on the History Channel, and because of the Zodiac Killer coverage around Colbert and uh, Dale Julin, another guy pushing Gary Francis Post as a Zodiac Killer suspect, these uh, D.B. Cooper issues were raised, and a it, it has been said to me that they looked into Rackstraw as a possible suspect for D.B. Cooper by they, I'm meaning the History Channel as well as the true crime journalist Billy Jensen, and they found it to be actually a rather flimsy case. But I would rather point out something very, very important. Colbert believes two other men helped pull off the heist, or I guess it says help pull the heist off, however you like to use your phrasal verbs. I have a problem about this with any type of true crime case when someone is immediately going to multiple perpetrators. It's almost like they're using it as, once again, another excuse. Or something doesn't add up in their theory, so they have to create another imaginary participant who is filling the gap, literally and metaphorically. Well, this guy couldn't have done it himself. Oh, maybe he brought a friend. I mean, we encounter this in the true crime world all the time. It does not mean they are wrong. I've talked about the multiple killers theory and the Zodiac mystery minute by minute more than any person on YouTube. Absolutely, these things are fascinating. They're curious and you want to know what's really happening. And they could be correct, but it gives me a lot of doubt in someone's theory. It's almost as if someone is making an assumption where the facts are missing. I just want to throw that out there about uh, Rackstraw. But at this time, I would also like to 
talk about a suspect that I was very curious about myself. I, um, on Drew Beeson's channel, he did a D.B. Cooper video talking about the various suspects, and the one that stood out to me the most was Kenneth Christensen. And Let Me Know describes him as a man with a military background. He worked for Northwest Airlines before and after the hijacking. He was 45 years old in 1971. He was left-handed, and it's possible that D.B. Cooper was left-handed based on some of the um, actions he was doing, like handling the briefcase with his left hand, and the way that he had his tie had one of those pins that would have been used the way a left-handed person would have. And he told his brother he had a secret before he died. He had over $200,000 in the bank, and he resembled the hijacker. You see, when I first heard about this guy, Kenny Christensen, I thought, aha, that is exactly the way that somebody like me in the general public would conceptualize D.B. Cooper. Somebody who's a flight attendant with a military background. Yes, the disgruntled flight attendant who knew how to skydive. Absolutely, that's who D.B. Cooper would be. And someone who's frustrated with the airlines, frustrated with everything to do with the job, but also has a whole bunch of military knowledge that could actually be somewhat dangerous if used in the wrong and inappropriate way. Absolutely, that's what I thought D.B. Cooper would sound like, and Drew Beeson can correct me on this if he wants, but I believe that he said that a big strike against uh, Christensen being D.B. Cooper is that he had never actually made skydive attempts from an altitude of that height. He had never jumped higher than 10,000 feet, and or even at 10,000 feet, so that would be a big blow against him. But about the age, though, we've talked about how Rackstraw... Um, uh, sorry, no, Christensen, Christensen, the guy we were just talking about, he was 45 years old in 1971. And at this time, I would like to read the bulletin that the FBI has put out for D.B. Cooper. A bulletin from the FBI. Following is an artist's conception of the hijacker who extorted $200,000 from Northwest Airlines on November 24th of 1971. The man is described as follows, being white, a male, mid-40s, five foot 10 to 6 feet tall, 170 to 180 pounds, average to well-built, olive, Latin appearance, medium smooth, dark brown or black, um, that's the hair, sideburns, low-level, uh, low-level uh, sideburns, possibly brown eyes, during the latter part of the flight, put on dark wraparound sunglasses with dark rims, Voices low, spoke intelligently, no particular accent, possibly from the Midwest section of the United States. That will come up later. A heavy smoker of rally filter tip cigarettes wore a black suit, white shirt, narrow black tie, black dress suit, black green type overcoat or dark top coat, dark briefcase or attache case, and carried a paper bag 4x12 by 14 and had brown shoes. Okay, so the age will be important. I think it's also important to be aware that some people look older than their age and some people look younger than their age. But if someone is going to be pushing a 25-year-old D.B. Cooper suspect or a 28, 29-year-old D.B. Cooper suspect, and he's estimated to have been 40 to 45 years old in the mid-40s, that might be viewed as a strike against someone. I don't think it would immediately disqualify somebody 
as a D.B. Cooper suspect, but if you have Googled D.B. Cooper once in your life, you may have encountered the name Richard McCoy, Richard F. McCoy Jr. And in fact, I think that he was a suspect that was really coming to the top of the search results. And I can definitely see why, but I'll just read what Lemmy Know has composed for him. He hijacked and parachuted from a Boeing 727 in 1972. He used a pseudonym, used an explosive device, which if I recall correctly was a grenade, not the briefcase bomb, but a grenade, used handwritten notes, used the phrase no funny stuff, demanded $500,000 in cash and four parachutes, and bailed out via the AFT stairs. And yes, that is how they believe D.B. Cooper bailed out of the plane as well. So, I mean, that also gets you curious. I found, though, that that's, that just means that he was a hijacker. But the biggest problem is McCoy has been identified. So says me, anyway. He did a rather sloppy job. Like, he was captured... And I believe he was actually able to evade the authorities for two days, but he didn't pull it off. I mean, there's something about D.B. Cooper where it seems like he knew what he was doing. If it is true that he survived, or just the way that he exited and just vanished into thin air. I mean, maybe it was an alien abduction or something. Maybe there's some type of Oregon vortex that we underestimated for all these years. Which, yes, there is, I'm fully aware, but either that or simply D.B. Cooper had a different set of knowledge that McCoy didn't. But did you notice that his hijacking, McCoy's, took place in 1972? And the odd similarities, when I was listening to that, I was like, okay, well that happened after the D.B. Cooper hijacking. I mean, the, the Cooper hijacking was in 71, his is in 72. He would have had months to have learned about the details, and then someone wants to try it themselves. I'm not saying that he did. I'm not a psychic. I'm not a mind reader. But that is definitely one of my first impressions. Now, one of the suspects that I thought was really, really weird on their list was Dwayne L. Weber. And the evidence they put forward for him, again, this is from Lemino, says he may have owned a bank bag. He may have injured his knee by jumping from a plane. He may have had a nightmare about leaving his fingerprints on the AFT stairs. And he may have visited Tina Bar in 1979. I was like, what? Maybe I own a bank bag. I may have injured my knee. I may have had a nightmare about leaving fingerprints on the AFT stairs. What do you mean? Like, what are you talking about? Oh, but the reason why this guy comes up is that he actually confessed to being Dan Cooper, and um, I don't really have too many comments on what he may have done. All right, maybe he was D.B. Cooper. Maybe he wasn't. What's your point? Like, seriously, what's your point? But Tina Bar is the place where they found the three stacks of money that were, I mean, they, I guess, have tracked the serial numbers, so they we can confirm they were from the money that was taken in D.B. Cooper's ransom attempt and the money that was actually on the plane that D.B. Cooper had with him when he parachuted out of the uh, Northwest Airlines flight. So three stacks of money were found on the 
banks of what can be simply be called Tina Bar. I mean, you have some rivers in that area. Oh, I just had it down. There is the Columbia, and they even talked about the Lewis River. But there's this place called Tina Bar off of, like, sandbar, so to speak, like a river bank. And that's where somebody found the money. But interestingly, the Let Me Know uh, video where that has provided these uh, pictures states that it was it would be almost impossible for that money to have landed there without human intervention, meaning that somebody moved it or buried it. And they put forward some possibilities about how these three stacks of money that came from D.B. Cooper's heist ended up on the ground, firstly stating that it would be nearly impossible for three stacks of money to fall out of a plane at 10,000 feet and land in the same place. I mean, nearly impossible. If they're going to land in different places. That was something that I never, I'd never thought about before, but I think that it's almost certainly true. I mean, they're going to be scattered, more or less. The stacks would be, the three stacks of money would land in different places. The second point is that, what if somebody found either the bag or they found D.B. Cooper's genuine remains and they didn't know that it was D.B. Cooper. I mean, of course, that happened the night of. They found this money in the woods, and they buried three stacks of it. Maybe they buried uh, money all over the um, all over the, the countryside, more or less, in little hiding places, so to speak, and it just remained behind, because another detail that I had not encountered before is that the bills were actually heavily degraded, by the time they were discovered at Tina Bar. So that gives me some cause for suspicion that somebody did bury them there. But okay, what they said though, and let me know is, can you think of a plausible explanation about how those three stacks of money could have fallen from the sky and ended up at Tina Bar, three stacks all in the same place? And without human intervention, meaning someone didn't find them on the ground and then bury them. And it really is quite challenging. But to go to a different suspect, I have talked a lot about Drew Beeson in this episode because I've interviewed him in the past. And he's the author of the book Paratrooper of Fortune, which talks all about his D.B. Cooper suspect, Ted B. Braden. And I would like to share a message that Drew Beeson has written about Ted B. Braden. First, he wrote to me and said, Ned, I'm excited to hear about your upcoming D.B. Cooper episode on Black Box Online Radio. I can tell you since the last time you had me on BBOR talking about my prime suspect, Ted Braden, being the infamous D.B. Cooper, I have only become more solidified in my belief. Like someone remarked, on a D.B. Cooper message board on Reddit. If you had to invent a D.B. Cooper suspect, you would invent Ted Braden. I promise that wasn't me. Ted Braden was arguably the best parachutist that ever lived and had the intellect to come up with the Cooper caper in the first place. I will let others determine how much he resembles the Cooper sketches. Below is an excerpt from my book, and this is what I will uh, share with you guys in a second, about Ted Braden from the book Paratrooper of Fortune. Good luck with the show, Drew. Okay, so um, first, uh, thank you to Drew for providing me with this text here that I can read to you guys. Ted Braden was the perfect combination of high intelligence and criminality, and that was from Ted's sister-in-law, Joanne. 
The fascinating case of D.B. Cooper has garnered a myriad of colorful and interesting subjects. One of the dark horse suspects who emerged over the years was a member of the most elite special forces units created by the United States government to serve during the war in Vietnam, a secret and covert unit called the Military Assistance Command, Vietnam Studies and Observations Group, also known as MACV-SOG, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, M-A-C-V-S-O-G, MACV-SOG. This rather benign-sounding name served a thin veil, masking what was known to few as a black ops unit in Vietnam. Many of the soldiers who served in this elite unit consider one of their own to be the infamous D.B. Cooper, who hijacked Northwest Orient Flight 305, demanded a ransom of $200,000 in cash, and jumped out of the lowered AFT staircase of the, a of the plane into the stormy night, never to be seen again. It was even stated by some of the most highly decorated members of the Mac V. Sog legends, such as Major John Plaster and Sergeant Billy Wall, that one of the one man in the Sog had parachuting experience and the know-how, and most of all, balls of steel to pull off the D.B. Cooper hijacking. And he, of course, is talking about his suspect, Ted B. Braden. So I think it's important to um, highlight this one thing about the conditions in which D.B. Cooper jumped, because as I understand this, and any of you guys who are experts out there on D.B. Cooper can challenge me as a newcomer and correct me if I'm misstating this, but it, when D.B. Cooper would have jumped out of the plane, the clouds would have completely obstructed the view from down below. To the best of our knowledge, I mean, there's always a chance, right? But he would have been jumping blindly into cloud cover, and he had a parachute that he could not steer. So, I mean, someone would have had to have had balls of steel to do that in the first place, let alone, that is a big reason why many people believe that D.B. Cooper did not survive the um, descent back to the land. And also, D.B. Cooper, to the best of our knowledge again, would have jumped out of the plane just wearing a pair of loafers. Those were the shoes that he was wearing. And people think that it's odd that this guy's demanding $200,000 in cash, but not demanding a helmet, not demanding boots. And as someone like me, who has never been skydiving before, I was like, now, um, what kind of boots really would be involved that would make too much of a difference? I mean, if someone were actually a very experienced jumper, then would they know how to land in a lighter type of shoe? And also, people believe that someone is just going to be parachuting into the wilderness, more or less, and then they would have had to deal with the November conditions, which in the Pacific Northwest are going to be a little bit harsher. They may have been in the wilderness for two days until they would make it to a certain place. And then the manhunt for D.B. Cooper was launched. So... I mean, you guys be the judge, but if you would like to hear more about Ted Braden, you can look at the book Paratrooper of Fortune by Drew Beeson, the story of Ted Braden, Vietnam Commando, CIA operative, Congo mercenary, and just maybe D.B. Cooper. Now, the next suspect I would like to talk about is the Zodiac Killer, and I am not joking. There's a book out there called My Dance with the Zodiac Killer by David Gold. He, David W. Kuchar, also known as David Gold, I should say. And I was just on his YouTube channel listening to some of his D.B. Cooper claims. He, of course, believes that his suspect, Frank Morris, was the Zodiac Killer and was D.B. Cooper, as well as one that I hadn't quite heard 
before, but I'm not surprised at all. The My Dance with the Zodiac Killer lays out a case that three people, Frank Morris, John and, and John and Clarence Anglin, the Anglin brothers, were responsible for the Phantom killings, the Texarkana Moonlight murders, that is, in 1946 in none other than Texarkana, believe it or not. And then they went on to become the Zodiac Killer. Yes, the Zodiac was a group of people. And then Frank Morris was D.B. Cooper. But in his video that I was just watching about D.B. Cooper, he also accused Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers of murdering the Black Dahlia, Elizabeth Short in 1947. And in a video that he did actually responding to my channel, he stated that Frank Morris and the um, Anglin brothers were responsible for the Mothman murders, but I was so glad that he corrected himself and said, okay, not the murders, but the Mothman, because I was like, as a West Virginian, the Mothman is not a murder crime spree, so to speak. The Mothman is a paranormal event that, uh, well, it doesn't really function like that, but we don't have to talk about any of that stuff. His whole theory is that these guys, Frank Morris, as well as John and Clarence Anglin, are the three guys from the escape from Alcatraz, that they escaped Alcatraz prison, and during the 1960s and 70s, they were committing an enormous amount of crimes. They've been committing crimes as early as the 1940s, and they were, well, I think you can get the idea, three super criminals who have done an enormous amount of terrible things. But I do... I do want to note something very interesting about Frank Morris when I pulled up his wanted poster, where it says here that um, he is listed as a male born in 1926, but his race is white or Hispanic, and D.B. Cooper was listed as possibly Latino, or just he had some type of characteristic that almost seemed Latino about him. I just wanted to share that out with you guys. Now, the next one, the next suspect on our list is none other than Loki. I think that Loki is perhaps one of the better D.B. Cooper suspects because as an Asgardian, he would have had the abilities to pull off a jump like that. I mean, absolutely the most capable individual that I've talked about so far. Loki is also someone who had very intense sibling rivalries that would encourage him to do some destructive things throughout all of existence and so on. And you really see that there is this type of sexual frustration going on with Loki, and he really needed some type of female counterbalance in his life until he could stabilize that not even destructive force, but that annoying force that made him such a problem, or such a puny god, so to speak. I think the um, biggest strike against Loki being D.B. Cooper is that he's not real. But I do have something lighter for you. This is not really D.B. Cooper related, but you guys know that I follow the podcast Crime After Crime. I've caught every episode since 2018, and perhaps their most famous story that they've done on Crime After Crime, hosted by Daniel Howland and John Lorden, is the story of D.B. Tuber, and I will share that with you right now. Firstly, this is from HistoryLink.org by Phil Doherty, just citing the source. D.B. Tuber robs an armored bank car guard at the Bank of America in Monroe on September 30th of 2008. 
on September 30th of 2008 in one of the more unique bank robberies in Washington state history, one that made the national news. An armored car guard is robbed outside of a Bank of America in Monroe, Sonomish County. The robber posts a Craigslist ad several days before the robbery seeking workers for a phony job. The workers are instructed to wear the same work outfit. Those answering the ad receive emailed instructions telling them to meet near the bank at 11 a.m. on September 30th, and about a dozen men show up at the prearranged hour. At the same time, the robber, similarly dressed as his decoys, assaults the armored guard outside of the bank and flees with $400,000, almost like double D.B. Cooper. The robber escapes by floating away in a yellow inner tube on nearby Woods Creek, earning him the nickname D.B. Tuber. A 28-year-old man, Anthony Curcio, is later convicted of this crime. Oh, and um, they did say the title of his Craigslist ad was Laborers with Landscaping Experience Wanted for Job in Monroe. Those who um, answered got an email telling them to meet at 11 a.m. on September 30th in Monroe at two different spots, a parking lot and at Eagle Park, located near the intersections of Old Owen Road and Highway 2, and both were near a Bank of America branch. The ad, the ad also instructed the workers to wear safety glasses or more equivalent eye protection, a ventilator mask, and yellow safety vests, and wear long sleeve shirts. So everybody's dressed the same, and he could just blend into the crowd, creating his own crowd of people who are all similarly dressed. And, I mean, it would confuse witnesses to no end. So this really is a fascinating story, but much like the some of the people that we've talked about, they have done some very intense criminal behaviors. I mean, of course, Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers were sent to Alcatraz, but even McCoy was not successful with his hijacking attempt, nor was D.B. Cooper. He was apprehended. And the final suspect that I will share with you in the D.B. Cooper mystery is none other than D.B. Cooper himself. So this whole thing about the media misunderstanding the name of the person who used the alias on the airplane. It really is just shocking that back in those days you could get on an airplane with an alias. But from people who are older than me, they said that's the way it was. It used to be you could get on the airplane and then buy your ticket, right? So the guy's name was actually Dan Cooper, this alias that was provided by the suspect. I'm sure you know that story. But then D.B. Cooper someone that they checked out whose initials were D.B. Cooper saying, oh, is this Dan Cooper? This Dan Cooper on the plane, is he actually the D.B. Cooper who actually exists? And they looked into him, and he was quickly cleared. But then the media reported that the hijacker was D.B. Cooper instead of Dan Cooper. But I think uh, D.B. Cooper has a much better ring to it. So I say, just going to keep going with that. Was there a D.B. Cooper suspect who didn't make the list, and you can, um, if there is one, you can put his name down in the comment section, and maybe I'll cover him in a future episode. However, this really is some new territory for me, and I will accept any corrections that you guys have, any commentary, anything you think about Christensen, McCoy, Rackstraw, Braden, any of the suspects, even Loki, or even the Zodiac Killer connection, or... If you have something to say about DB Tuber, 
please put all of that down in the comment section down below. This program is available for free download at Launchpad 1, and a great way to support the show in addition to just listening is to go over to Amazon.com and have a look at the book Killer on a White Horse by me, Ned Dahan. It's a novel murder mystery, but inspired by the Zodiac Manson connection, and you can always visit the Teespring page. Feel free to have a look at some of the merchandise, and remember... Being weird is not a crime. Anybody can write the show at blackboxall9radio at aol.com. All of that is in the description box there, as well as my personal Facebook, and blackboxned88 on Instagram. I will see you over there on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.